If you're comfortable by a raise of hands, how many of you know what a meme is? Okay. Uh, if you don't, it's okay. My wife called them maymays for a while when they first come out. But a meme is a picture often with words intended to convey an idea or an expression, right? They're sent over text message most often, maybe posted on social media uh, in a way to kind of convey something that the sender is desiring to to send. There were some common memes throughout the Cavaliers playoffs that I wanted to share with you after uh, the game uh, round two dominance of LeBron and the Cavs versus the Toronto Raptors. There was a common meme that went around LeBronto right, that LeBron owns Toronto, so much so that they fired their coach of the year, Dwayne Casey, after the dominance of the Cavs, right? As they went to game one of the NBA Finals, there was an unfortunate incident with J.R. Smith. Four seconds left, and he dribbles out looking for Kyrie. I don't know what he was doing, right? But there, there was many common memes around this idea. There's LeBron's frustration we just left the restaurant. Why didn't you go then to J.R. Smith? Or maybe an expression based off Michael Scott from The Office, LeBron looking at J.R. Smith like Michael Scott, right? That's when he broke his hand after the end of game one. Or a common meme based off The Simpsons with Bart in detention, I will remember the score, right? And so we send memes to convey ideas and expressions There is a popular meme that goes around based off a daytime talk show host, and he asks this question often at the end of his conversations. How's that working for you, right? What context this question would come in is one with uh, much of a sarcastic undertone. Maybe, for example, Ethan heard that I ran out of gas. He may say, Adam, I heard that you ran out of gas, and I may respond, well, I like to push it as far as I can on the E and, you know, maximize, get as cheap a gas. And he may respond, how's that working out for you, right? Have you ever thought of that question, either yourself or maybe been posed that question as it relates to your faith? How's it working for you? Is your faith making a difference? Is what you practice on Sunday translate into how you live Monday through Saturday? Does what you believe change about the manner in which you behave? Does your faith have impact on your marriage, on your family relationships, on the way in which you view and go about your work, on the way that you treat and interact with others? Faith, how's it working for you? We've looked over the last four weeks at the book of James, and we've talked about a faith that works. And we said that all of us desire a faith that makes a difference, a spirituality that actually makes an impact. Ironically, God is looking for the same thing. He is looking for a faith that makes a difference, a faith that works. And thus far, we've kind of looked at faith as it navigates trials. And how to have confidence and assurance that we can consider trials pure joy. We've taken a look at faith in regards to temptations and struggles that we may face. We've taken a look at faith that we are called not to be just hearers, 
but doers of the word. And this faith leads to be concerned and care about the vulnerable amongst us. Last week, we took a look at faith that doesn't play favorites. That the gospel lens with which I look through people causes me to accept people as they are with the hopes of being able to take them where they need to go. And so today we're going to continue in in our conversation from the half-brother of Jesus as he writes very practically to us on what it looks like to work out our faith. If you'd like to follow along in the Bibles in front of you, we'll be in page 978. It'll be on the screen as well. You can follow along on the app if you just search Grace 30 and 30. The passage that we're going to be dealing with today has come under much controversy in church history. It was a passage that Martin Luther, the reformer of the Protestant Reformation, struggled with significantly. It's a passage that I've received an email in the last week about and have many conversations with. And there's a summary verse in James chapter 2 that kind of gives us uh, a good indication of the thrust which, which James is writing in this passage. And it's found in James 2.24. You see that a person is considered righteous, made okay with God, by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, if you've been at grace for any amount of time, hopefully this verse may cause a little tension within you, right? Because we often talk about through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That it is this idea that we are made right with God through faith alone. That we would look to other verses in Scripture, such as Romans, that say, for we maintain that a person's justified by faith, apart from any works that they can do to earn salvation. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we can have peace with God. So this is very significant for us to consider because if we leave these verses to be contradictory, it has something significant about what we believe and what we say we believe. We often say you don't have to believe everything that we share to come here to Grace Church, but we believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. That what we have is written of what God intended. That it is without error, that it's inerrant, that it is authoritative, that it is reliable, that it is trustworthy, and that it is inspired by God in the original manuscripts. And so what we have, if we have verses that seem contradictory, we should be very concerned about the reliability and trust that we have with the Bible. So as we kind of begin to navigate this tension, it's important for us to consider reading the Bible with 2020 vision, right? That's looking 20 verses before and 20 verses after to kind of understand the context with which James and Paul are both writing. If I were to give you two statements as an example, you may see on the surface that these statements are contradictory. Aiden is not a big man, he is a small man. Aiden leads our singing up here if you haven't met him. Verse Aiden was a very big man, right? On the surface, these seem to both be impossible about being true. 
right? But what if I were to tell you that the first one's based on Aiden's stature, his height, right? That compared to the rest of the pastoral staff, his directory is more in line with Pastor Bob than maybe some others, right? So Aiden is not very tall in terms of stature. But what if the second statement was not related to height, but more about his popularity, This is Aiden and his high school boy band called The Homecoming. Aiden's in the far right corner there. That's where he got kind of the nickname of the Jonas Brothers. That is Mike in the back middle. He's on uh, the tech back there. And they would go around, travel uh, in various states, put on concerts, sell some merchandise, make some CDs, right? That he was big in terms of popularity, not hype. Context is everything in determining the meaning of Scripture. Because what we have is the Bible is written over a course of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors that have been led by the Holy Spirit and God. And what we see is that they're writing to different audiences, different groups of people at different times. And what we see as apparent contradictions may actually just be audience and author author differences. And so let's look at the context surrounding Romans and James to kind of understand a little bit more about what they are saying. Romans chapter 4 is sandwiched in the two verses that I showed you in Romans. And Romans chapter 4 is all about one person. And that person is named Abraham. We see in verse 1 it says, what shall we say about Abraham, our forefather? According to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What Paul is saying is that Abraham has nothing at all to boast about. There was nothing that he was able to do to earn his justification before God. That it was by faith, because we see in verse 3 what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages aren't credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So what Paul is saying here is that any system of works, whether it's minimal or extensive, changes salvation from a gift to an obligation. God is indebted to give the gift of to, to give salvation to anyone that is able to earn based upon that system of works. And he's saying that is not the case with Abraham. And he's quoting from Genesis 15:6. Because what we see in the life of Abraham is that we are introduced him in Genesis chapter 12. At the age of 75, God meets Abraham, gives him a promise, and says, Hey, you without any kids and a wife that's barren, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation so that you will be a blessing to the other nations. Right? Abraham kind of laughs at that promise. We see a few chapters later that God, in a vision, reminds Abraham of that promise. He has him at night. Look up at the stars in the sky. And he has him begin to count the stars. And he says, as many as the stars in the sky will be your descendants. And it said, at that moment, 
Abraham trusted the promises of God. And because of his belief and conviction that God could fulfill his promises, Genesis 15, 6, that because of his belief, it was credited to him as righteousness. At that point, some 75 years, maybe a year or two older, he was made right with God. Now, I find it very interesting that in the book of James, he's also talking about Abraham as well, but it's a very significant, different event in the life of Abraham. Look with me. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person's considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So at age 75, he receives this promise. It would take him 25 years before this promise came to fruition. Imagine that patience and the struggle with which he had to trust in God over that course of time. And so at the age of 100, he receives Isaac, the son of the promise, the one who's going to carry on the blessing to the people. Some 10, 15 years later, Scripture doesn't say exactly, but when he was a young lad, God asked Abraham to sacrifice that promise on the altar. God asked Abraham to take his one and only son and to place him as a sacrifice before God. Immediately at that point, it says that Abraham trusted and obeyed God. He left the next morning. He gathered firewood and things ready to make the fire, and he began a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. He went with servants. As they came to the bottom of the mountain, his servants left them. Him and his teenage son Isaac begin to trek up this mountain. And you can hear Isaac as he understands this idea of sacrifice and he looks to his dad, Abraham, and says, Dad, we have the wood, we have everything for the fire, but where's the lamb? I can just imagine the fear and trepidation that Abraham has in response. Isaac, we need to trust God. The Lord will provide. They make their way up the top of the mountain. They gather all the rocks and they build an altar. And then they place the wood on top of the altar. Then Abraham, probably shaking, he grabs Isaac. And it says that he bound him up. Probably wouldn't have been an easy thing to place him on that altar. Shaking, but seeking to trust and obey God. And he grabs his knife and saying, God, I don't understand what you're calling me to do. And at the last minute, he hears the word stop. And he looks in the thicket, and there's a ram for the sacrifice. The Lord will provide, right? God is progressively revealing himself to Abraham and to the other nations that he is a God who doesn't, uh, isn't okay with child sacrifices, one that is often practiced by other world religions. And by faith and obedience, Abraham sought to follow God. 
So when we're looking at James and we're looking at Paul, they're talking about two events that are separated by some 30, 40 years. And what James is saying that Abraham's faith was lived out in response of trust and obedience when he was made right with God some 30 or 40 years ago. I'd like you to write this kind of big idea that both Abraham and Paul and James are talking about. And it's this. Faith alone has always been God's credit to pay my debt. Faith alone has always been God's credit to pay my debt. Galatians 2 says, For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. When we think about the setting of which we now stand as New Testament times, we recognize that it is by faith of what Jesus has done, his finished work on the cross, that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, that he was God himself, and that he suffered an unjust death on the cross for the payment of our sins. We live in faith in response to what God has done. But faith has always been God's calling card. It wasn't in the Old Testament that saints could live according to Old Testament law or the Ten Commandments and earn or receive salvation. It has always been through faith alone as they look forward to the cross and what God would do and provide a once and for all sacrifice. That everything they did led up and pointed to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. So it's always been by faith alone, we can show the next picture, that God justifies, makes one right with himself. I think it's important for us to kind of unpack a little bit more this idea of faith. If it's through faith alone, what exactly is this definition of faith? We see in Hebrews chapter 11 that God gives us a definition. This is the hall of faith. And he says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see, This is what the ancients were commended for. It goes on to list many ancients. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. When the Bible talks about this word faith, what is the the Greek word that you can forget, if you like, is pistis. What it means is this idea of intellectual agreement, but a complementary idea of trust. That faith is both agreeing intellectually, but also living in response of trusting. I'd like you to write it down this way. Faith involves personal commitment, not just intellectual agreement. I was having fun with uh, my kids. I have three kids, six, four, and two, throughout the Cavalier playoffs, and I was trying to make some Cavs fans out of my kids. My oldest daughter was a little bit antagonistic because she always wanted to root for whoever the Cavs were playing against. So she was a Pacers fan, then a Raptors fan, and uh, Celtics, and now she's a Warriors fan, right? She was having fun with me. But my other two, uh, they obliged a little bit more, right? And so my son Cooper and my daughter Jenna, they would go around the house at random points and just yell, go Cavs, right? 
Now, everything in their life, they may agree or state that they are Cavs fans, but I can tell you they're not Cavs fans. My daughter has no idea who LeBron James is, right? She has no idea uh, of a basketball versus a soccer ball. They're still very close. She's two years old, right? And so she may have intellectual agreement, but she doesn't have a life that lives in response, right? Often when we think or maybe are misunderstood about faith, we can think it is a prayer we pray rather than a life that we live, right? That there is a complementary idea of trust or repentance. It is living one way and changing my mind towards Christ in response of obedience and living a different way. Faith involves moving from willful rejection to joyful acceptance, from naivety and ignorance to one of familiarity and agreement, from disregard and disinterest to passion and involvement. Faith always involves transformation. We move from uh, being dead to being made alive. We move from being blind towards now we see. We move from being arrogant to being humble. Faith involves transformation. It's a personal commitment. I think James here goes on in the passage to kind of give this knockout punch, so to speak, as it relates to how we understand this relationship between faith and works. He's given us this example of Abraham, the forefather, but now we'll see that he kind of defines what faith is. And we see in James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that therefore there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. Have you ever thought about maybe the theology of demons? I would tend to think that they probably have better theology than most of us, myself included. They believe most likely that God was a triune God that existed as Father, Son, Spirit. They believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, incarnate. Right? They believe that he lived this sinless, perfect life as they sought to tempt him. They believe that he died an unjust death and that he rose again. It isn't what the demons believe about God or Jesus. It's the fact that they don't like what they believe about Jesus. Right? They think that they can rebel and win against him. They haven't bowed their knee to him. They haven't surrendered their life. What we see is that James is giving us this definition of faith. That it involves one of trust and obedience along with intellectual agreement. James goes on to illustrate this point a little further by talking about another person in Old Testament history. One very different than we see in Abraham. And he talks about the woman of Rahab. In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Most of the time if you look in scripture and you see the name Rahab, you see her uh, profession associated with her. Right? That we don't know the circumstance that may have led her into this life of prostitution. 
but we know that it is one that is far from God's desires and plans for her life. One with uh, corrupt, evil intentions, one with much pain and much sorrow. And we see that James is using Rahab to highlight another point about faith. And he's saying, remember that story in Joshua chapter 2? When I had promised the Israelites the promised land, and at that point they chose to send out spies into the land, and in particular the city of Jericho, that walled city. And as the spies made their way in the land, they were kind of found out. Someone was on their tail, and they made their way into Rahab the prostitute's house. Rahab, at the response of meeting the Israelites, recognized the God that they worshipped. Saying that is the God who can move the waves and can control the wind. He's the God that parted the Red Sea, the God that has given you this land. I pledge my allegiance and my mustard seed of faith with your God as opposed to the God that I worship in the strength of my people. I know that God has given you this land. And in response to her faith, she hides the spies so that they may head back out safely. And we see in Hebrews 11 that by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with the others who were disobedient. I think what James is doing is highlighting this story of Rahab to give us a particular point, And it's this. Faith is one decision that covers my multitude of ignorant, immoral, or corrupt acts. Faith is always one decision that covers the multitude of mistakes that I made. The reality is, what that tells me, is that I can never be too far from God. That I can never do enough bad in a way that I will shun or lose myself from God recklessly pursuing and chasing after me. Right? That the church walls will never fall in as some point of me coming in because God always makes himself available to me no matter where I've been. That God offers to each of us through one decision a life we don't deserve. A life of graciousness, of love, of hope, of peace, of strength, of confidence based on one decision of faith. It covers my multitude of mistakes. It covers my past, no matter what. To further understand this kind of relationship of faith and works, I think it's important for us to see a theme that James uses before and after this section of Scripture. And it's a theme that, honestly, we can be a little uncomfortable about. In James 2.12, it says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law. Look in James 3.1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you will be judged with greater strictness. Now, in all honesty, the idea of judgment makes us tremble, right? Makes us a little fearful. But I think that is in part because we don't fully understand God's judgments. Because in Scripture, we see that there are two separate judgments. One is known as the great white throne judgment. And that judgment is reserved for those that haven't said yes to Jesus in their earthly life. 
It's reserved for those that haven't submitted and given their life over to Christ. And at that point, they're judged based upon perfection and God's goodness as we see. And they, unfortunately, fall short. We see that everyone who goes before the great white throne judgment will live a life of eternal condemnation and eternal punishment. Because they haven't said yes to Jesus. But for those that have said yes, we don't escape judgment completely. There is a judgment, but one of very different manner. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And we're not judged in a punitive measure. We're not judged based upon our sin, but rather our life of faithfulness. We're judged based upon our good works in response to the gospel message. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. This day of judgment is one in which our good works will go through this conveyor belt, so to speak. And those things done in right motive and for the glory of God, they will make it through, and they will be rewarded. But the ones done out of impure motives or seeking my own affection will be burned up. We've already received that reward. Now, when I think as those who said yes to Jesus, we can maybe still look at that day out of fear rather than opportunity. I tend to think of that day much like a graduation ceremony. Think back to when maybe you're in high school or you're in college and you got your gown on and you were ready to go to your high school ceremony. And you anticipated a rather long, maybe a little bit boring ceremony. And you had your family and friends there with you. And as you made your way to your seat, you're just kind of observing those around you. And you see over here to your left, those with a little more bling than you. Maybe those are the cum laude or the summa cum laude folks who are wearing proudly their GPA, right? Maybe over there you scan and you see the class valedictorian who's a little nervous about the speech that they're going to have to give, right? And there may be a little shame or regret thinking, I could have done a little bit more. I could have done some more of my homework. I could have studied a little bit more for my test in order to earn that higher GPA. But for most of us, we're going to be overcome by the joy that we have graduated, right? We're going to celebrate the fact that we have moved on from this stage onto our next stage. And the same thing is true at the judgment seat of Christ. There may be a level of shame or regret that we didn't live our life to the full, but we're united with Jesus forever. That there is no sin, no pain, no struggle, no turmoil, right? That we get to spend all eternity because one decision of faith. And our good works are our resume, so to speak, with what we've seen, how we've lived our life in response. And it's one of opportunity that it's not too late. Whether I'm a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior in this life, it doesn't matter. I still have time 
to live in response for my good works so that I don't have regrets on the day that I meet Jesus. It's one of opportunity, not one of fear. It's important as we've worked hard to sow the distinguishation between works and faith that we see that they can often hold hands together as well. And I think this is kind of the thrust of which what James is talking about. And we see this in his introduction to this section. In James chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it's not accompanied by action, is dead. James says that our faith precedes and produces good works. We live by faith alone, but faith is never alone. I'd like you to write it this way. Faith will inevitably be characterized by good works. Our works serve as a litmus test as it relates to our faith. The manner in which we engage out of the right motives gives us indication of the depth of our belief, trust, and faith in God. They hold hands. Faith produces and precedes good works. Billy Graham says that faith is taking the gospel in. Good works is exhaling the gospel. That is this correlation that as I understand how much God has done for me and the extent with which he has served and lived and forgave me, that it's only natural in response that I would begin to show that to others. Because our faith and works tend to go hand in hand. I read of a story this week uh, in a book by Reggie Joyner. It's called Parenting Beyond Capacity. And he talks about there was a, a dad of three children, and one of them was a teenager. And uh, the father met with their pastor, and he was concerned because his teenage daughter had kind of gone wayward. She began to change her dress attire, began hanging out with the wrong crowd, and lost complete interest in the church. And so the dad was really discouraged and frustrated, and he went to uh, the pastor and said, I don't understand. We tried to make it a priority to be at church. We talked about God around the dinner table. We memorized scripture. We did everything we thought we knew how in a way to encourage this life of faith. And the pastor asked the question, what ministries have your family been involved in? And the father fought through a minute, he couldn't think of anything. He went home that night, began to have a conversation with his wife, and they explored the opportunity and came across this orphanage in Central America. And they decided as a family that they were going to adopt this orphanage. And so he threw it out to all of his children and said, hey, what ways can we bless this orphanage? And so they thought of different trips, thought of different fundraisers, thought of different ways to try and help meet the needs and care for these orphans. And what the father said was that over the course of time, he began to see 
the position and direction of his daughter drastically change. From her disinterest of anything related to God to her excitement and passion of following God. Because at that time, what the world was offering was a more compelling story than anything she ever imagined that following Christ would be. That there is a sense of adventure and desire that God allows us to be a part of reconciling the world to himself. And it's the most faithful, adventurous life that I can live, and that is one by faith. Right? That this picture or opportunity we have to make an eternal difference in the lives of others, that we have to share and meet and serve and meet others' needs in a way that makes an eternal difference. The manner in which we go about our good works should give a picture of the depth of my faith. Often when I think of my own life and I look at rather larger faith decisions, I tend to think of things in the past. But I know going forward that I don't want my biggest faith decisions to be ones in the past, but rather ones in the future. I want to live in response to what God has done in full abandon and trust that God has allowed me to be his ambassador, that God has used me to make a difference here and now in the lives of others. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace that we've been saved through faith, it's not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by the works, so that none of us can boast For we are God's handiwork. It means that we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God invites each of us to a life of faith, a life where good works are done out of joy and response in a way of caring and growing in my understanding of the gospel. That when I hear and inhale the good news of the message of the gospel, the natural way is that it's a faith that makes a difference. That Sunday is the time where I get geared up to run hard into Monday through Saturday. Right? That when I hear and spend time with God, that it impacts the way in which I treat my kids. That it impacts the way in which I treat my marriage. Because God offers us a faith that makes a difference. A faith without action is dead. A faith that he is inviting us into a compelling story to live in response to what he's done to make a difference in the lives around us. If we were to live by faith, imagine what God would do through Grace Church. Imagine the lives and the people that would be impacted for the sake of the gospel. Imagine what God could do through your life as you continue to walk in obedience and faith, trusting that God has allowed you to do good works in advance which he has prepared for you. Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, that we recognize we're imperfect, that we fall so short of who you are. But yet, it's not of anything that we do that we earn your love. It's because that you have shown us love first. 
And Lord, we love out of motive in response to the manner in which you've loved us. Lord, as we leave here today and we think about our own life, I pray that you'd give us clarity to the needs around us, to our passions, to our gifts, to our talents and our abilities, in the manner with which you've called us to serve. And Lord, may we grow in our faith in a way of living in response to who you are. Lord, we thank you that you have invited us on this journey, that you've allowed us to do good works in a way that will result and point other people to who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name.